Hi, my name is Brian and I'm the pastor of Vision at Holy City Church. I'm glad that you found our online sermon resources and I pray that the Lord would use them to strengthen your faith. I would exhort you not to use our online sermon resources as a substitute for regular involvement in your own local church. That being said, I pray that our teaching resources would be helpful to you and conform you even more into the image of Christ. Acts 17. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance... God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed, and and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, 
and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Stanley Dale was an Australian missionary to West Papa, the western portion of the island of Papua New Guinea, uh, which is is now a, a part of Indonesia. And Stanley Dale was an Australian missionary there during the 1960s. Uh, originally, his first encounter in West Papua was as an Australian, an elite Australian paratrooper commando during World War II. Uh, Dale's unit was stationed on the island of Papua New Guinea to thwart the advance of the Japanese army. And Dale saw the mountains and valleys of West Papua while on patrol as a soldier, saw the valley, saw the snow mountains. And he prayed that God would give him an opportunity to return there to preach the gospel to the unreached tribes. And by 1961, Dale was married and had returned to West Papua with his family in order to engage the Yali, a tribe, a fierce Stone Age tribe, uh, unknown to the world but known to the other tribes on the island for their violence and cannibalism. Engaging the Yali was difficult, and on two separate occasions, uh, Dale was shot with multiple arrows as he tried to engage the tribe with the gospel. Even when Dale saw some Yali people converted to Christ, uh, some of them were then murdered by other Yali. A discouraging mission to a people who were very resistant to God's word. Now, at the same time, Baptist missionaries David and Esther Scoville were also on West Papa proclaiming the gospel to another tribe, the Doni. Now, like the Yali, the Donis were essentially a Stone Age tribe, no access to the outside world. Like the Yali, the, the Doni were an animistic tribe, so they worshipped tribal spirits, and they were fearful of, of spirits of the ancestors who sought to harm them. And unlike the Yali, however, the Donis were extremely receptive to the gospel. Tribal leaders would gather outside David and Esther's hut each day of the week, wanting to hear more kiwone, or living words, from the big book. So daily Bible lessons began. In a matter of weeks, the leaders of the tribe came to David's team saying, My fathers, the things which we do and worship are in direct opposition to the living words which you gave us from the big book. We as a people have made a decision to do away with our life of killing one another and worshiping of the spirits. We want to live the way that big book tells us to live. To do that, we must destroy our weapons and fetishes immediately. When the missionaries pushed back and they said, you don't yet understand the gospel, not fully, the leaders of the tribe replied, there is a veil over the eyes of our hearts which does not allow us to take in any more truth. That veil is caused by these things in our net bags, the Little bags of, given by the shaman witch doctors. But a Sunday not too long after that interaction, uh, the missionaries were at the missionary airfield and 8,000 Donny tribesmen showed up. The men, women, witch doctors, everyone threw away all their weapons, their charms, their magic bags, their amulets into a fire that they built. They were knowingly exposing themselves to their tribal enemies by burning all of their weapons and knowingly exposing themselves to all of the spirits that they once feared by doing away with their witchcraft. But the Donnies wanted to cut off every form of idolatry and every tool of murder that they had. They would no longer live in fear of tribal spirits. They were going to live in fear of Jesus. The Donnies then became a help to missionaries in preaching to other tribes in the area. A couple years later, in 1963, Phil Masters, an American missionary, arrived in the Kurupun Valley of West Papa, entered the village of the Kimyal tribe. The Kimyals, like the Danis and Yali, were a Stone Age tribe. Like the Donnies and Yali, the Kimyals were an animistic tribe. 
worshiping tribal spirits, fearful of ancestral spirits who sought to harm them. Like the Donnies and the Yali, the Kim Yal had a, a witch doctor shaman chieftain who practiced magic in order to gain favor with the great spirit Kimbu and to avoid his anger. The shaman chieftain also helped ward off the ancestral spirits who would harm the people of the tribe. And Phil Masters spent time learning the language of the Kimyals and began to regularly communicate the gospel to the Kimyal tribe, traveling each Sunday to different Kimyal villages to teach the Bible. And due to Masters' efforts, many of the Kimyal were converted, including sons of the Kimyal chieftain. And one of those sons would later become a pastor of the Kimyal church. Phil Masters and Stan Dale, the the Australian missionary who was engaging the Yali, uh, but encountering lots of resistance, they began to work closely together to reach the Yali tribe, seeking to engage the villages that themselves had not been encountered and were unengaged with the gospel. So in 1968, as the two missionaries uh, walked along a riverbank from one Yali village to another, they were struck by nearly 200 arrows from the bows of Yali warriors. And their bodies were never recovered. The Yali divided up the two men's bodies, either cannibalizing or burning them. The Yali then took their men's bones and buried them throughout the jungle, seeking to prevent the resurrection of the men's bodies. The gospel hoped that both Phil Masters and Stan Dale had regularly preached to the tribes. Each man left behind a wife and five kids. Gospel proclamation produces different responses. Sometimes thousands of people respond in faith to the gospel. We saw that at Pentecost. We saw that with the Donnies. Sometimes God saves and calls to ministry the most unlikely of people. The Apostle Paul and the son of a Kimyal shaman chieftain. And sometimes gospel workers suffer hardship. Arrows, swords, stoning, losing family members, and martyrdom. In God's wisdom, different peoples and places respond differently to God's word. And in Acts 17, 1 to 15 in particular, we're going to look at the first half of this chapter this morning. We see a a tale of two cities. One city responds to gospel preaching with a few converts, but mostly serious opposition from multiple enemies who all reject God's word. And then another city that responds to gospel preaching with many converts, many converts, all of whom regularly and eagerly examine the Old Testament Scriptures to see that Jesus Christ really is the fulfillment of Old Testament expectations and promises. What Acts 17 asks of each of us is, how will you respond to God's Word preached? And two points this morning for those of you who are taking notes. In verses 1 to 9, We'll look at the Jews in Thessalonica. And the first point is this. Preach and proclaim the apostolic word faithfully, regardless of the cost. Preach and proclaim the apostolic word faithfully, regardless of the cost. So in this first point, we're going to look at, as saints... How should we be speaking and proclaiming the word? Preach and proclaim the apostolic word faithfully, regardless of the cost. Second point, we're going to be looking at, as saints, how should we receive the word? Second point is this, receive the apostolic word with eager faith, not unbelief. We're looking at verses 10 to 15. Receive the apostolic word with eager faith, not unbelief.
Receive the apostolic word with eager faith, not unbelief. All right, first point. Preach and proclaim the apostolic word faithfully regardless of the cost. So as we turn to Acts 17, Paul's team has arrived in Thessalonica, continuing to press further into Roman-controlled Europe. As has been the practice, Paul begins with Jews at the synagogue. It makes sense from a missiological perspective to start with the Jews. So four four points here I, I want us to notice in Paul's strategy. First, Paul has theological reasons for pursuing the Jews first at this particular time in redemptive history. We saw him say it explicitly in Acts 13, verses 46 and 47. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So in the same way that Jesus, in his earthly ministry, first went to the children of Israel, and then to the nations, Paul rightly sees that Israel, the ethnic nation of Israel, God's old covenant people, they were the ones who inherited the promises. They're the ones who inherited the covenants. They're the ones through whom the Lord had divinely intended for the message of God's promised Messiah would spread to the ends of the earth. Therefore, as the gospel begins and spreads out from Jerusalem, Jews would be Paul's first target. Then he'd approach the Gentiles with that same gospel message. He says this exact point in Romans 1.16. First to the Jews, or I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation for all who believe. First to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Not that Jews and Gentiles have more or less value, but an ordering in terms of the gospel going forth. Now, we don't live in the first century. The new covenant was established roughly 2,000 years ago. So we don't have the same pressure to first pursue the Jews in Charleston and then the Gentiles. But if we think practically... We see the Apostle Paul first engages with people who have a biblical worldview and share a certain view of God's Word. So, we live in a post-Christian nation. And though we live in a post-Christian nation, there are still many people in our culture who profess to believe in God, profess to believe in Jesus, and affirm the Bible. So as you're thinking about how to share the gospel in our city, and as you engage our community, be mindful of those unbelieving people, family, friends, co-workers, fellow students, that you know who either grew up in Christian homes or who share a biblical worldview or who believe the Bible is true. Kids in this room hear the gospel week in and week out. They're raised in households that share a biblical worldview and share a certain view of Christ and the gospel, but many of them are unbelievers, what should we be doing? Keep graciously and lovingly seeking to persuade them of the truthfulness of the gospel while you pray that God will save them, and do so with others around you, in your homes, workplaces, etc. If you think about it practically, Paul wants to plant a church where he doesn't have to lay a foundation of general biblical truths. God created the world. He created man in his image. When he goes from city to city and he targets Jews first, they've already got that foundation laid. So he's building upon the Old Testament truths that they affirm. And then talking about how the Old Testament now is fulfilled in Christ. All right, secondly, Paul thinks strategically about where he's going in order to maximize his gospel influence. Thessalonica is a major city in the Roman Empire, influential in the region in terms of culture, trade, and politics. Thessalonica was on the Via Ignatia, 
a major nearly 700-mile Roman road that extended from modern-day Turkey to Albania. And so from Thessalonica, Paul and any church planters and or missionaries that the Thessalonian church could raise up would have opportunity to travel by land or sea. It was a major port with a major road. Paul wasn't only concerned about large urban areas because we're going to see his interactions with the Bereans. Berea is a small town. But Acts does demonstrate to us that two things are equally true. The hand of the Lord was leading the Apostle Paul, and Paul and his team were thinking strategically about where to go in order to maximize their gospel work and influence. That's not just Paul's job. That's our job as well. We need to think strategically about where God has placed us, where we live, where we work, where we go to school. And while God may not be calling many of you to foreign missions, you need to take the reality that God has sovereignly placed you where you are, where you eat lunch on Sundays, where you hang out, in order that you might be able to leverage where God has placed you for the sake of the kingdom. Now, like we, we, I've talked about this before. And this is typically true, especially of a lot of younger, younger adult, new family saints. But, but many, many saints will move to a new city because they're going to get $15,000 more a year than they were in the city from which they moved. And they move without having ever put any thought into what local church where will I be a part of? Like, is there a healthy church in that area that I can be a part of to help minister where I will be fed? Because an extra 15 grand isn't going to feed your soul. So my encouragement to younger, younger saints when they're, you know, Charleston's a transient city, come here for school, come here for short-term training, what have you, and then they go out, before, find a church before you find a job. But not just that, if, if, if you're going to stay here, you, some of you may be thinking of buying a house. Or what have you. Thinking about where to live. It's not just missionaries on West Papa that need to think, where should I be living? What kind of house should I have? Like, you should be thinking like missionaries. So when you think about buying a house, maybe square footage isn't the first thought. Maybe being closer to the church building. Maybe being closer to the community in which you're, you desire to minister because that, rather than square footage, is better for the kingdom. If you go to the same place to eat lunch every week, form a relationship with the employees that you serve regularly so that you can have an opportunity for sharing the gospel. And have mercy. Leave a, leave a generous tip. Okay? There should be no stumbling block other than the gospel. We need to be strategic about how we're engaging our community, thinking about planting churches whenever God provides us those opportunities. We need to actually be engaging our community. And since we're all limited in our time, money, and abilities, we must think carefully as a congregation about what gospel opportunities we want to emphasize and what, where we can effectively minister over the long haul. Paul and his team were thinking in those categories and it's not just Paul, because he's the apostle, that should be thinking that way. And it shouldn't be just missionaries who live overseas who should be thinking that way. The people that we send overseas are the people who are thinking that way where they lived. Because you don't start thinking that way when you go overseas. Everything hits the fan when you go overseas. It was encouraging to get a phone call from a brother this week who's thinking carefully about how to start an evangelistic Bible study with other Holy City Church brothers at a coffee shop he frequents to think about when and how to start 
a Bible study at the same time that there are book club meetings happening in this coffee shop that he frequents. And I want all of you, Holy City Church Saints, to feel the freedom to start evangelistic Bible studies. Okay, You don't have to say, Pastor, is it okay if I start evangelizing somewhere? That is what the Bible commands you to do. So think strategically. And if you need resources, if you need money, if you need an announcement, come talk to me. We will do whatever we can to help you make that happen. I can't do all of the evangelistic Bible studies. Drew can't. Chandler can't do all the Bible studies with the women. Though that's what we try and make her do. So feel the freedom to start those studies and just tell us what you need to make it happen. All right, third point. Paul was strategic in who he had working as a part of his team. Luke emphasizes here that Paul and Silas, both Jewish converts, both from Jerusalem, are the leaders in reaching the Jews in Thessalonica here. Okay? So I went to the orthopedic... um, Doctor's office this week, because I've, I've been having, I mean, I've had shoulder pain and issues for years, but a particular pain for a number of months now. Uh, finally went to the doctor, and they diagnosed me with a, a posterior labrum tear in my right shoulder. And uh, the physician's assistant told me they wanted to start me on physical therapy, uh, because they generally discourage Uh, this kind of surgery to clean stuff up as a first option for older patients. (laughs) So I'm, 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 I'm sitting there and I'm like, yeah, why, why, why is she telling me this? Um, and, and then I realized this, this Physician's assistant is like 10 years younger than me. Her assistant is like 15 years younger than me. I'm like, wait a minute. I'm the old person that you're talking about. So apparently, I don't need to be the first out of the gate when engaging the youth, engaging the young folks, even though because, like, I've got teenagers, like, I am fluent in the lingo these days. No cap. <laughs> right? I learned all these things from Elijah. I think that there's a place for thinking strategically about the particular Christians who should be engaging particular people in our, in our community. We, we need to be thinking in, in those categories. We need to be willing to evangelize and engage all peoples and also be strategic about who we have engaging particular peoples as well. All right, fourth point. Fourth point. The foundation and power for Paul's preaching and evangelism was these spirit-inspired scriptures. Paul trusted the power and authority of God's word to change the hearts and minds of unregenerate people, whether they be Jew or Greek, male or female, poor or rich. It was not Paul's rhetoric, it was not Paul's eloquence that raised the spiritually dead, it was the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Son of God, crucified for sinners, raised for our justification, seated at God's right hand for our sanctification and glorification that changed the hearts and minds of Paul's listeners. And Paul sought to persuade his hearers from the gospel, from the Old Testament scriptures. So as we seek to proclaim and evangelize, we, we need to strategize. We need to think carefully about who and when and where and all of that, that's all good, good stuff to be thinking about. We must ground our local church ministries and our own personal evangelism upon the power and authority of God's Word alone. God's Word never returns void. It always accomplishes what God purposes for it. Isaiah 55. So, While we should seek to be winsome, persuasive, we must not put our confidence in those things, but in the power of God's word to raise the dead. Now, that being said, we should seek to be persuasive to those who hear us. 
which means that we shouldn't be lazy or dumb in our ministries. Okay? I've met guys who preach as the Spirit leads them. And oftentimes that's an excuse for being lazy and not working hard to write a sermon, outline, or a manuscript. Paul knew the word backwards and forwards. And from that intimate knowledge of God's word, along with his trust in God's exhaustive sovereignty over every conversion to Christ, Paul sought to persuade from God's word. So know your Bibles well. Know God's promises in Christ. Know sound doctrine. God's word must ground your evangelistic efforts. But, but also seek, seek to read and listen to great sermons. Listen to how other men and women seek to persuade others. Talk to other brothers and sisters who you see doing great work in this area. Ask to tag along with them as they do it. Read Christians who have written influential works in the history of the church. Maybe it will help you to be more persuasive in your efforts. But we must always seek to evangelize by trusting the Spirit of God to illuminate the minds and the hearts of those to whom we proclaim the authoritative and powerful Word of God. So, by God's grace, some of Paul's listeners in Thessalonica hear the gospel and they believe. Paul's apostolic gospel proclamation persuaded some of the Jews, as well as many of the Gentile Greek God-fearers, including high society women. Jewish jealousy, just like we saw in Acts 13, Jewish jealousy leads to persecution of Paul, his team, and these new believers. The unbelieving Jews do not believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises because of their sin and rebellion. Though they profess to love Yahweh, they are willing to sin, slander, and stir up trouble by employing wicked men, like first century Antifa, to form a mob and start a riot in the city. The Jews use these wicked men to, sly, to lie and slander God's servants and, and then twist the message of the gospel and to turn the local pagan government against Paul and his team, just as the Jerusalem Jews did to Jesus at his trial and crucifixion. So if they did it to Jesus, and if they did it to the apostles, they might do it to you. Why? Because everything, all of it was an effort to thwart the advance of the gospel, the preaching of the good news of God, God's promised Old Testament Messiah, who had come to save his people from their sins, by grace alone, through faith alone, and him alone. There is no other message, there is no other good news that provides the full forgiveness of sins. And so the enemy will do whatever he can to thwart that message going out. And let me just tell you, lying about and slandering gospel ministers does not ever glorify God. Regardless of how much you think that you are obeying the Lord and honoring Him, lying and slandering against ministers of the gospel, never a good idea. No matter how much you profess to love Him, and the Jews in Thessalonica said, we really love the Scriptures and we really love Yahweh. You can be that self-deceived to believe that you really love the Lord, and then when you slander and lie to the gospel ministers that God has brought, it reveals something about you. So don't be, unlike the, don't be like those unbelieving Jews, beloved. If you're not a Christian, you're here this morning with us, thankful. Do not reject Jesus as these unbelieving Thessalonian Jews did. I would plead with you to turn to Christ. Like, look to Him. Trust Christ, who bore the penalty of sin, who endured death for His people. Turn from your sin. Turn from your disobedience against God. Turn in repentance to the one who died in order to save His people. You aren't made right with God simply by saying that you love God. 
You are not made right with God by regularly gathering at a synagogue or a church building in His name. You are not made right with God simply by being zealous for Him. You're made right with God when you're washed by the blood of the Lamb. You only receive this cleansing when you trust Christ Jesus and repent. Don't trust in your obedience. Don't trust in your righteousness. Don't lean on your good works. All of those things will fail you. When you lean on them, they will pierce your hand when you stand before the Lord as they collapse underneath you. Stand with Jesus. Let Him be your representative. Let Him be your substitute before God. Don't imitate the unbelieving Jews in Acts 17. Don't be God's enemy. Turn to Christ who has been raised in order that His people might live. And we see the unbelieving Jews turn to the local Thessalonian government. Uh, the Thessalonian government en- enjoyed a lot of freedom from Rome because of past obedience to an influence uh, for Caesar. So in Thessalonica, there was no Roman presence. In order to have Paul and his team thrown under the bus, the Jews turned to this government. And Jason, apparently a new Christian convert, we don't hear about him before this and we don't hear about him afterwards. Jason is attacked at his house, thrown before the local government leaders, and the Jews... Again, like the Jerusalem Jews, at Jesus' trial, swear fealty to a Roman Caesar who is regularly deified and worshipped as a god. They side with the false god that they know and reject God's promised king. That is not very obedient to Yahweh. Let me just tell you, not obedient to Yahweh to the Yahweh they profess to love. They falsely accuse the Christians by seeking to undermine Caesar, or they falsely accuse the Christians of seeking to undermine Caesar and Roman rule by twisting the declaration of Christ's kingship. You know, when Jesus is questioned by Pilate, like, are are you the king of the Jews? My kingdom is not of this world. There's a twisting of what Jesus' kingship means now that the unbelieving Jews are taking advantage of with the Thessalonica government. Christians, even though they don't worship Caesar or the Roman gods, aim to be the best citizens. That should be your aim, to be the best citizen in obedience to God. Living peaceable and submissive lives. God's kingdom is not of this world. It's breaking into this world, but it is not of this world. King Jesus will establish his throne in its fullness at the new creation. As we look at these particular lies, beloved, you must recognize that you will be falsely accused. You will be intentionally maligned. You will be mischaracterized as you seek to be faithful to King Jesus. You will if you are seeking to be faithful. Jesus was hated. Paul was hated. And you'll be hated for loving him. The sooner that you realize that the animosity against you is first and foremost against Jesus, the better. If you can depersonalize it, oh, this is primarily about Jesus. I mean, they hate me, but they really hate Christ in me. Until Jesus returns, there will be people, Jew and Gentile alike, who respond like the unbelieving Thessalonian Jews. We see this reality in church history. The father of modern missions, William Carey, I don't encourage you to be a husband like he was, but be a missionary like William Carey. He traveled to India in 1793. By 1799 or 1800, he had translated the entire New Testament into Bengali, the language of the people of Bangladesh. Over 200 years after having the New Testament in their own language, the Muslim Bengali sheikhs remain the largest unreached, unengaged people group in the world. There are roughly 500,000 Christians who are part of the Bengali sheikh people group. Now that sounds like a lot, 
but there are over 134 million Bengali sheikhs. So of their total population, less than one-third of 1% are Christians. 500,000 people is less than the population of Metro Charleston. So it'd be like a slightly smaller Charleston being full of Christians and then the rest of the entire East Coast being Muslim. That's how many Christians there are. In fact, it, a little bit larger than the rest of the East Coast. Bengali sheikhs who convert to Christianity often endure abuse from others, including family and the government. I read this from Voice of the Martyrs uh, this past week. Um, Last year, a respected Muslim imam in Bangladesh, Abdul, began having visions of Jesus. When he met a pastor and received a New Testament, he gave his life to Christ. As a result, he was rejected by his wife, son, and brothers. He was then beaten to the point of hospitalization. Violence, murder, property theft, and imprisonment have been a regular pattern for Christians in this area. Despite Carrie's influence and the Bengali New Testament being in that area for over 200 years. Some areas, like Thessalonica, respond to the gospel in a way that is clearly and repeatedly wicked. We see the same issue today. The rest of Acts 17 shows that Paul nor his team gave up in the face of political and religious and physical persecution. They kept moving on to the next ministry opportunity, trusting that God was directing them by His Spirit. And as, we, as the section closes, we see Jason and others who are arrested. They post bail on the condition that Paul and his team then skip town. For the sake of the new church in Thessalonica, Paul's team moves on. In the middle of the night, starts the same preaching process in a different town. Which brings us to the second point. Receive the apostolic word with eager faith, not unbelief. So the unbelieving Thessalonian Jews are an example of how not to respond to the gospel. Don't do it that way. The Thessalonian Jews were agents of Satan's plan. uh, Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2.18 rightly sees his inability to come back to see the Thessalonian church as Satan's work to, to hinder Paul's mission. Don't be a partner with the devil in the advance of the gospel. Don't partner with him. He is a terrible partner. He wants to kill you. As we've seen in Job, God is exhaustively sovereign over all of Satan's efforts to harm and destroy God's people. And in the gospel, we see Jesus has destroyed the power of Satan by defeating sin and death. Paul being chased out of town at night isn't accidental when the hand of the Lord is the one directing your steps. Paul and Silas and the others traveled to a smaller town about 45 miles away, Berea. And in Berea, you have a dramatically different response to Paul's Old Testament gospel preaching. So Luke writes that when Paul goes to the, to the synagogue in Berea, the Berean Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Now, more noble here does not refer to noble birth. It, it does not re- refer to social, social status. Rather, the Bereans were more open-minded of Paul's Old Testament teaching. So, the Bereans were open-minded, but they weren't empty-headed. Okay? They didn't just simply accept Paul's gospel teaching uncritically. But neither were the Bereans distrustful or suspicious. With eagerness and goodwill, the Bereans examined the Old Testament scriptures themselves to determine if the things that that were taught by Paul were true. In fact, the the term that Luke uses to describe how the Bereans were examining the scriptures, that's actually a legal term. Examining. So this legal term refers to the careful study of, of something with integrity and the absence of bias. In other words, the Bereans wanted to give Paul and his team a fair hearing. That's what it meant to be more noble. A fair hearing isn't a disposition of distrust and suspicion, 
But a fair hearing isn't also like, oh, since you said it and you say that you love Jesus or you love the Old Testament, I'm just going to automatically and critically believe it. The Russian proverb popularized in the West by Ronald Reagan gets closer to the attitude and disposition of the Bereans. Dovie no provie. Trust, but verify. Not all the Bereans would have had the Old Testament scriptures. There would have been one at the synagogue. But not all the individuals would have had it at their homes. So much of their eager examination would have consisted of asking Paul lots of critical questions. Not being critical of Paul, but critical thinking. Questions over his weeks of teaching and seeking to persuade them from the Old Testament text. What's their response to the gospel preached from the Old Testament? By God's grace, we see a much better reaction. Many of the Berean Jews, several Greeks, and again, a number of upper-class Greek women all believe. Luke makes a point of noting in both Thessalonica and Berea that leading and influential Greek women heard the gospel and believed. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the great equalizer. All people are dead in their sins. All people are guilty of disobedience before a perfectly loving, holy, and just God. All people everywhere deserve God's righteous wrath because of their disobedience. And the gospel cuts across every worldly divide. No one, Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free, poor or wealthy, has an advantage when it comes to sin and death. All people everywhere, because of our guilt, our wrongdoing, must rely solely upon the person and work of God's Son, Jesus Christ, in order to be saved from God's wrath, the power of death, enslavement to sin, and enslavement to Satan. The gospel of Jesus Christ humbles all of us equally. Regardless of how many initials you got behind your name, regardless of what your job is, regardless of what wealth you were born into or that you've been able to accumulate because of your success, the gospel humbles all of us because all of us are on the same level before King Jesus. We are all on our knees. We are all on our knees before the cross at Calvary. We all bend our knee before the Lamb who shed blood affords us the grace to be made right with our God. And if you see both yourself and God rightly, there is no place for pride. It was our sin, beloved, that put Jesus on that cross. The Sovereign Grace lyric that I've always loved, the best of, the best of my works, nailed your hand and your feet. It was for us, beloved, that Jesus walked out of that tomb. Male and female, we're all equal image bearers before our God and equally guilty. While our roles and our jobs might be different in the home and in the church, we all equally bear God's image and are all equally valuable. Jesus died to save men and women from hell. You aren't better because God has given you earthly riches. It's amazing how many people you meet because of their wealth, simply believe that they're better. James has to write a lot about that. The Gospels have to warn a lot about the dangers of the pursuit of wealth. You are more righteous just because you're poor. Rich and poor are equally dependent upon God's grace and daily provision of bread. Whether the rich man knows it or not, he is equally dependent upon God's daily provision of bread. The world might care about social classes, but God shows no partiality. In the salvation that God provides solely through His Son, there are no distinction. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.28 Jesus doesn't eliminate our earthly distinctions, but he makes no distinctions between people and salvation. Jesus tears down any walls that we might erect in order that we might divide ourselves from others or be puffed up towards one another. Luke notes the variety of people who hear the gospel and believe, and we do well to remember that God loves to save all kinds of people. 
Regardless of the kind of people to whom we preach, we must do so with boldness and confidence, trusting that God will draw his people to himself, for salvation is from God alone. The Bereans repented, believed that the Spirit opened their hearts and minds to believe the apostolic gospel from Paul, receiving the apostolic word as the proper interpretation, the right application of Old Testament teaching is a result of the Spirit illuminating God's word to God's people for God's glory. So in our preaching and proclamation, we must pray for God to move, pray for God to empower our efforts to persuade, ask God for his spirit to illuminate the hearts of our listeners to rightly understand the word, ask God to cause his word to accomplish salvation, to regenerate the lost, to grant faith and repentance to his people. That must be our disposition, beloved, when the word is being proclaimed and taught. The Bereans didn't start a riot. They didn't slander Paul. The Jews from Thessalonica come over to Bereans, get that started right back up. And and that simply reveals their unbelief by how they continue to respond to the word being preached. A believer's examination and reception of the gospel or of sound doctrine must not be one of suspicion and distrust. So I want to... Press in here because um, Holy City Church tends to draw a lot of Reformed folks or people who love Reformed theology and praise the Lord for that. But in my experience, anecdotally, uh, we tend to have more of an issue with this particular point. I'm convinced that there are many professing Christians today who claim to be Bereans but they use that term as a reason to be distrustful and or suspicious of various forms of spiritual authority and teaching. Whether it's been in Louisville or Charleston or on social media, being a Berean has too often been code or a scapegoat for being unkind, suspicious towards leaders, unwilling to give others a fair hearing, unwilling or unable to disagree charitably, or feeling the need to take God's place in judging the faithfulness of others' ministries. That is not being a Berean. That's being a jerk. I've had several saints in the past tell me, I'm just just trying to be a Berean. Again, when you're just being an arrogant jerk. Like, who are you winning by acting this way? Being a Berean doesn't mean writing graceless, blistering comments against faithful ministries online for non-gospel issues. The Bereans gave a fair hearing to Paul about the gospel. Not about spiritual gifts. It doesn't mean being puffed up without love towards others. It it doesn't mean being unteachable before the teachers God placed over you. It doesn't mean being unsubmissive to the leaders and elders that God has placed over you. And it doesn't mean that you get to simply church hop around because you're the only one who has the correct interpretation of Scripture. You're the only Berean in the town. That's pride. That's not humility. The Bereans were humble. They submitted themselves to the apostolic word when they gave themselves to eagerly examining the Old Testament scriptures. It was the unbelieving Jews in Thessalonica who slandered, who lied, who mischaracterized Paul. The Bereans were noble. Like, we need to be noble because we love Christ. Because the Spirit of Christ is working itself out in nobility in us. The Bereans had an Augustinian spirit of faith-seeking understanding, which presupposes humility. Beloved, be like the Bereans. Be noble. Pursue truth. Think critically. Hold fast to the gospel. And if the Bereans were open-minded and gave a fair, unbiased hearing to Paul with regard to the gospel itself, how much more so should we be open-minded, charitable, kind, unbiased, and fair as we seek to be Bereans about non-gospel issues, like the millennium, or spiritual gifts, 
or issues pertaining to Christian liberty. I mean, there have been issues in Louisville, even at Emmanuel. There, there were instances where people were about to divide over cloth versus non-cloth diapers. It's foolishness. We cannot disagree on the gospel. We can't. But Christians can be Christians and disagree on second and tertiary issues. We need to imitate the Bereans' attitudes of love and charity and open-mindedness while also carefully examining the final authority on all these issues, the Word of God. So as a Christian, do you eagerly examine God's Word? Like genuine question, do you eagerly examine God's Word? Do you cherish it? Do you hide the Scriptures in your heart so that you can recognize faithful teaching? So that your heart sings when you hear sound doctrine as God is glorified in it? For nearly 50 years after they first believed the gospel, the Kimyal tribe of West Papa listened to uh, tapes of the Bible in their own language, committing large portions of it to memory. They didn't have a written language. But in 2010, the Kimyal tribe finally received the New Testament in their own language. Uh, Justin Taylor put a link of uh, this particular event on his blog in like 2011. If you haven't seen it, I challenge you to watch it and not weep. Not weep for joy at saints receiving the New Testament. And I challenge you as you watch it not to weep in sorrow that we have, not, we have had God's, God's Word in our own language for so long and we do not cherish it as these, as these saints and brothers and sisters do halfway around the world. The video shows the entire tribal village out on the airstrip, men, women, and children, dancing, singing. They're singing, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. When the Kimyal tribe receives the New Testaments, uh, one of the first converts, uh, the son of that shaman chieftain from the early 60s, he's an elder in the Kimyal church, he, he prays over the Bibles, right outside the plane, as, been taken out, as it's been taken out. He prays over the Bibles as old men and women and other pastors and saints around him weep for joy. And this is his prayer. O oh God, O oh God, the plan which you had from the beginning regarding your kimyals, which already existed in your spirit, the month that you had set the day that you had set has come to pass today. Oh, my father, my father, the promise that you gave Simeon that he would see Jesus Christ and hold him in his arms before he died, I also have been waiting under that same promise. Oh, God. You looked at all of the different languages and chose which ones will be put into your word. You thought that we should see our word, your word in our language. Today the day you had chosen, today is the day you had chosen for this to be fulfilled. This day it has come to pass. Oh God, today you have placed your word into my hands, just like you promised. You have placed it here in our land. And for all of this, oh God, I give you praise. That's being a Berean. When these Bibles were given to the Kimyals, leaders and representatives of the uh, Yali tribe. We're also present. In the 40 plus years since the martyrdoms of Stan Dale and Phil Masters, many Yali had turned from cannibalism and idolatry and turned to Christ. The deaths of Stan Dale and Phil Masters weren't wasted. The Yali leader and church pastors asked uh, Patricia Masters, the wife of Phil Masters, the widow of Phil Masters, they asked her to forgive them for murdering her husband. And she told them she had already, she already had forgiven them 
because she had been greatly forgiven. Ten years later, in 2020, 2,500 Bibles written in the Yali language were delivered by plane to the Yali tribe. As the formerly hardened tribe danced and sang and rejoiced at the arrival of God's word in their own language. Like the Bereans, the Kim Yal and Yali tribes eagerly examined and received the Apostolic New Testament, though their initial reactions to the gospel preached differed. They all now cherished it. Be like the Bereans. Be like the Dannys. Be like the Kim Yals. Be like the Yalis, beloved. Ask yourself, do I cherish God's word myself? Do I read it? Do I study it? Do I drink deeply from it? Do I memorize it? Hold fast to it that I might not sin against my God. May God cause us to be Bereans as we love and cherish God's word. The gospel of Christ Jesus as we proclaim it to others.